0: For all who take refuge in Him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Lord, we pray again that you would come and be with us. Would you grant to us your Spirit? Open our eyes. Make us able, we pray, Lord, to see, to understand, and to believe your word here in Scripture. Change us, make us new, cause us to grow in your grace, we pray, in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Many of the pairs of the psalms are considered to be one. We saw that with Psalms 42 and 43 a few weeks ago. Those two psalms are divided in your Bible, and they were broken up in times past. We're not exactly sure why, maybe for liturgical reasons, but a lot of Psalms are paired together and and go together. Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of like that. They actually are are paired together. They, they match together in some important ways. You see it thematically, but you also see it in the fact that in your Bible, you can't tell this by looking in your bulletin on page 7 where you see the Scripture, but in your Bible you would notice that Psalm 1 and 2, neither of them have, what's called a superscription. It's the heading title over the psalm. The bold title that you see there is, is not scripture. That's what the, the writers, the, the publishers put in there to kind of help you know what's coming. But the, the capitalized superscription over psalms is what I'm talking about. These psalms don't have one. Now, in the entire first book of the psalms, it's divided into five books. And the first book, so to speak, is Psalms 1 through 41. All of those psalms that have a superscription, and almost all of them do, are attributed to David the king. All of them are. The few exceptions that don't have a superscription heading are mostly paired with the psalm before it, which does have one. Psalms 1 and 2 don't have a superscription. The point being, most scholars suggest, is that they are the superscription to the entire Psalter. They are the introduction to the whole of the Psalms. They introduce to us the overarching themes of the Psalter and even the themes of the whole narrative of Scripture. Psalm 1 is a a psalm of wisdom. It's a psalm that points to the way of covenant blessing for one who stands, who walks, who lives before the Lord. Psalm 2 is a psalm of kingship, pointing out the one who established that way for the good of all people. Another way that you know that they're connected together is that they begin and end with bookends. If you notice this in your own Bible, you'll see that Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and so on. Blessed is this one. Psalm 2 concludes then with, Blessed. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, it says, And so, in that sense, those two psalms together, the way of the wicked in Psalm 1 becomes explicit in Psalm 2. The way of the wicked in Psalm 1 becomes to be expressed by the kings of the earth and their raging actions in Psalm 2. In the same sort of way, the way of the righteous in Psalm 1 becomes explicit. It comes to be expressed as the Son Himself in Psalm 2. Wisdom leads to royalty, which leads back to wisdom in these two psalms, the superscription heading to the entire Psalter. O kings, be wise, the the psalmist writes here, the narrator gives to us. And these are little k kings. If you notice, that these are the, the lowercase k kings, the kings of the earth. Some of them wear real crowns, but most of them actually wear imaginary crowns, you might consider. And all of them need the wisdom of the king. O kings, be wise. What wisdom does this psalm of kingship offer to us? It's a wisdom of urgency. It's It's a wisdom that says to us, yield yourself. Yield yourself to God. Because humanity rages with vain schemes. Why do the nations rage, the narrator asks, and the people's plot in vain. The narrator, it may be David, we don't know for sure, the narrator observes the world around him and he makes some theological application according to what he knows. And he sees that the powerful ones in this world have an unholy aspiration about them. It might be better actually to to say an unholy meditation about them through which they aspire to what is simply not theirs. The nations rage, he says. In your Bible, there's probably a, a, a number leading down to a tiny footnote at the bottom, which you need a magnifying glass to read. The nations rage, that is, they noisily assemble together. They get together and, and they, they're, they make a, a commotion, a, a noise, an assembly. They've gathered to plot and to murmur, to meditate on vain things, the psalmist says. Again, it's a continuation of Psalm 1. What happened at the beginning of Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what does he do? He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. This is what the righteous one does. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. But the wicked are not so. The wicked are like chaff. What's chaff? Chaff is, is that, that uh, leftover husk of the wheat after the threshing floor activity of the, of the harvester. The chaff blows away in the wind. The chaff is vanity. And on what vanity do these ones meditate? To what vain thing do they aspire? Well, he tells you. They set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed. This is a coronation song written for the occasion of the ascension to the throne of King David or some other Israelite king, and it was used surely in those ceremonies as a song of coronation. But did the nations really rage against David? Did the nations really rage against Israel? They had some enemies around them. They had neighbors that gave them trouble, and they gave trouble to their neighbors. But generally speaking, the world itself didn't rage against David. The world itself didn't rage against the kings of Israel. This seems to be speaking of something much bigger, a bigger king. Humanity's unholy aspiration, as we saw in our liturgy earlier, is to free themselves from their Maker. But that's just an untenable position, isn't it? And it's an impossible position to defend. Why? Because they set themselves against the Lord and against His anointed. What what do these unholy aspirations say? What, What do they claim? Let's burst their bonds apart and cast away the cords from us. These earthly kings, these earthly rulers, they're not concerned about slavery at the hands of a master. That's that's not their thing. They're concerned about ownership at the hands of a maker. These kings want to belong to themselves. They hate being owned by one who made them. Now, the New Testament reading that we saw earlier helps us understand this a little bit. It actually puts it into some historical light. In Acts chapter 4, you, you heard that reading. Moments ago, in Acts chapter 4, the the days following the resurrection of Jesus, and Peter and John go to the temple to pray, and there they find a man who's lame, laying at the temple gate, and he's always there. He's been there for years, this man, asking for alms, and he asks them for alms. And they say to this man, this is days after Jesus rose from the dead, and and the disciples are filled with strength. The Holy Spirit is at work, and, and they're working miracles. Peter and John say, to this man look we don't have gold or silver to give you but what we do have we will give to you stand up and walk in the name of Jesus be healed and he is he stands and he walks and he's amazed and he marvels he runs into the temple praising God and all the people see it they recognize what's going on Peter and John sees the opportunity and they begin to preach to all the people who are there assembled and seeing what had happened and people are believing the gospel as they've They're hearing it from Peter and John. They're explaining how the the prophets and the Psalms all pointed to this Jesus who rose from the dead just days ago. And the priests and the Sadducees overhear this commotion, and they come and they arrest Peter and John. They take them to prison, and they stand them before the Sanhedrin, the religious council, for questioning and for a scolding. And Peter and John say to them, should we obey you or should we obey God? It's not hard for us to figure out, but you're going to have to figure that one out. Well, they're released because they didn't break the law, and they immediately go back to their friends, the other disciples, and all of them together quickly apply Psalm 2. And what did they say? Their voices together, they, they, they raise their voices, and they say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in it, through the mouth of David, your servant, said this by the Holy Spirit, and they quote Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And then they explain themselves. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they're pointing out that these are the ones. That have raised themselves up against God, this psalm is fulfilled in time and space history right here they 're recognizing that that 's the case. Herod and Pilate are the kings, and the people are the nations in their commotion, but it 's bigger than that because remember it's it 's lowercase kings it's it's the the supposed rulers of the earth, those who are in charge of themselves. It includes the world rulers throughout history from Roman Caesars, to Far Eastern emperors, to African despots, to Latin American dictators, to American presidents, all of those who ascend to the place of power do so with an agenda, don't they? But it's more than that. It's more than that because it becomes smaller than that. It's not just the obviously powerful or the obviously enemies of God. It's it's actually people like you and me it's us in our own hearts who raise ourselves up against the Lord and against His anointed in ways like this. You know, many people use religion in order to avoid God. We all do this. I mean, you do this. I do this. We, we use religion to avoid God. We do things like we think in our heart, if I just behave well enough, then I can avoid answering to God. Or if I just attend often enough. How how many of you grew up with a Sunday school attendance plaque and maybe at the end of the year you had a perfect attendance or not? If I just attend often enough, maybe I can avoid answering to God. If I just give a little money, if I just give enough time, if I just give myself enough, then I can avoid answering to God. But it's an untenable position. It's an indefensible posture. Why? Because our very existence depends on the Lord Himself. We can't exist apart from Him, nor can these kings and rulers either. Some years ago, there was a a debate between a Christian philosopher, Greg Bonson was his name. He's since deceased. A brilliant Christian philosopher who debated against an atheist philosopher regarding the existence of God. And the, the debate went on for a couple of hours. And over the course of the debate, the atheist would make statements. Like, well, Dr. Bonson, when you speak of this, you should acknowledge that. And Dr. Bonson's response was, wait a minute, you can't use the word should. If you're an atheist, if God doesn't exist, if there is no power that created all things, including you, then you can't use the word should. That's my word. And the atheist would say things, well, but but you must, and Dr. Bonson would say, no, no, no. You can't use the word must. If God doesn't exist, then must doesn't exist either. There is no authority above anyone that requires should or must. You can't use those words. In other words, it's an untenable position because your very existence depends on the Lord. These kings can't stand against God without God. Dr. Bonson said to the atheist, he said, it's kind of like you're a child crawling into your daddy's lap in order to slap him in the face. You can't reach his face if you don't first crawl into his lap. Yield yourself to God because the raging of man is simply vanity. But you also yield yourself to God because God reigns with holy strength. What does the psalmist say next? He he explains He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Now, it may not really seem right to you, it may not seem polite. You know, God is laughing, but it's not good laughter. Is God being sarcastic here? I don't think he's being sarcastic. I think he's simply being strong because the one with holy strength sits in position to reflect on ancient decisions. It was, after all, an ancient decision that God would reign even over the disaster of the fall. Again, back to Acts chapter 4. The people recognized it. The disciples did after Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel gathered themselves against God, Luke wrote, to do what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And now, Lord, the disciples said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. This psalm right here is being played out in history. Right here before our eyes in Acts 4, it's being played out in history. The the people plotted and the kings conspired, and God laughed by giving his humble servants words to proclaim. Why do you need to know about God's ancient decisions? This is theology that goes way back way back as I said as as lord you had decided beforehand should happen why do you need to know this it's so that your soul will be strong not by knowing how to use religion to avoid god but rather by seeing where you fit in the scope of god's reign because god is strong you in him are strong Because God laughs at threats, you can speak boldly with the words that he's given. Paul wrote the same kind of thing to to Timothy. In his second letter to Timothy, he he explained, he, he said to Timothy, Don't be ashamed of the gospel, Timothy, because it's a holy calling from God, which he's given in his own purpose and grace. And Paul explains which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Paul's explained to Timothy, look, this, this is not new. This grace of God was decided upon before the ages even began, Timothy. You have to know God's extension of grace to you in the gospel is no afterthought. It was an ancient decision, an old decision before time even began And in that, you have strength. That grace is set because God has established his king, too. As for me, he says, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know, however the the kings of the earth may have set themselves, God has set his king. Again, this is a coronation psalm, a song for that assembly of of ascending to the throne, a, a new king of Israel. It's a song for the Davidic kings and and this king is set on Zion a, a hill that was important because it's where the temple was it's where the presence of god resided and none of the kings who ascended to this throne david solomon none of them could possibly have fulfilled the words that are are put to us in this psalm it's a messianic messianic psalm it's pointing to a king who's much bigger than the one who's ascending to the the throne And from ancient days, God had established that the second person of the Trinity would be the one who ascends to this throne. And to this king, the human race is bound. God has established his king. And if you reject this king, the wisdom of the psalm goes, then you will find another king. You can't avoid it. It's simply how you're made. It's how you exist. It's how you live. You're going to find a king. You have pledged allegiance to something, and it might not be the United States of America. It may be something entirely different. You've pledged allegiance to power or to poverty. You've pledged allegiance to education or to social renewal. You've pledged allegiance to upward mobility, or you've pledged allegiance to to the derision of those who are upwardly mobile. I mean you just can't escape it either way on one side or the other, you've pledged your allegiance to a king. And if you say, I'll claim Jesus, I'll pledge allegiance to Jesus as long as fill in the blank. As long as I have this or as long as they do that, then he's not your king. That thing is you can't use him as a means to an end because he's God's established king. This psalm teaches you to see with wisdom that God has established a king. And that king is the Messiah. The Messiah who rules with sovereign grace. So remember, there are three speakers quoted here in this psalm. And verse 7 shows you the third of those speakers. The narrator, the king is being crowned and he takes on this role that his anointing bestows. He's the anointed one, the, the, the human king, David or Solomon or one who came after him. They were the anointed one. This anointed one is, is Mashiach in the Old Testament, Messiah. This, this one is the Messiah. This man on the throne was representative of the Messiah to come. He was the anointed one, foreshadowing a greater one. And and the first words of this one on the throne are, I will tell of the decree. I'll tell of the decree. God decreed that Messiah would rule, but that he would rule from a, a very special position. He would rule as the Son of God. The Lord said to me, He says, You are my Son. Today I've begotten you. That's a a phrase from this psalm that's very popular in the New Testament, as you may know or could certainly imagine. You are my son, today I have begotten you. It's it's a, a phrase that's cited several times in Hebrews and in Acts and elsewhere. But one of those citations gives a certain application of wisdom for us that's appropriate. In Matthew 17, the Gospel writers allude to the fact that Jesus... Well, they tell the story. Jesus took Peter and James and John up to a high mountain, and there on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured before them. His appearance changed altogether. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light, and Moses and Elijah appeared there with him, right? You you remember the story. And Peter looked at all this, and, and in his wisdom of the moment said, Lord, this is really good. Maybe we can build some tents and you and Moses and Elijah can just stay here for a while and the three of us will hang out on the side and kind of watch what happens. This is going to be really fascinating, Peter assumes. But then a voice comes from heaven and what does the voice say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As though the words of God came to Peter himself, Peter, listen. Quit coming up with plans and designing ways to build tents so that you can say here, Peter, listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Later, Peter would explain this a bit more in his second letter where he wrote this. He said, we ourselves heard this voice from heaven for we were with him on the mountain. And so we have something more sure than clever myths. We have the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention. Peter hadn't missed the lesson. Listen to him, the voice from heaven had said, and Peter remembered, to which you will do well to pay attention. Because this Messiah is the Son of God. Listen to what he says. Listen to his word for you listen to what he says through his word by his spirit and thereby find refuge. There are three voices in this psalm. The, the first stanza is the kings of the world speaking out, raging against God. The second stanza is God the Father responding to that. The third stanza is God the Son through the voice of the king speaking out of the decree of God. But, but maybe there's a fourth voice here I mean, there is a narrator, the writer, who's explaining all of this. But look at the last stanza. Maybe the fourth voice is, is the Holy Spirit. I mean, I don't think it's much of a stretch to suggest. After all, these are the kinds of words that the Holy Spirit would say to you. He's extending terms of peace to the kings of earth. He's saying things like, now, you kings, be wise. This is what the, the Holy Spirit would, would say to you through Scripture. Be wise. Think carefully and observe carefully all that's around you. This, this is a word that the Spirit would say to you. You rulers, be warned. The, the Spirit would warn you. The Spirit surely frequently does warn you away from your sin and temptation to drive you back to the gospel. He warns you. Serve the Lord with fear and trembling, he says. Kiss the Son, that is, yield yourself to Him. And all of these things leading to the last line, the bookend, remember, that started Psalm 1. Blessed, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now, you know the the decree included a promise. Back in that previous stanza, a promise to the Son, what was it? I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That never happened for David. It never happened for Solomon. And it surely never happened for any king that came after them. This promise of God never came to fruition for any of the kings of Israel. So what gives? What do we do with that? Well, again, surely it's a part of the whole scope of Scripture and redemptive history. You just have to step on forward into Acts chapter 1 to see what happened. In Acts chapter 1, when this Messiah king had demonstrated his sovereign rule over even death by rising from the grave, he appeared to his disciples and he spent some 40 days speaking to them of the kingdom of God. And then before he ascended to heaven, he said to them this. You know these words. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And here's this psalm coming back to visit us again in the New Testament as it unfolds in time and space history. Here it is. And, and here again you see the overarching story of the whole of the Bible right here in Psalms 1 and 2 together. What is it? Happy, blessed. Happy is the one who delights in the law of the Lord. He avoids wicked counsel. He avoids sinful ways. He avoids scoffing seats. He always bears fruit. But no man, no woman truly does that. None of us do. Instead, our hearts rage and our minds plot and struggle to to break the bonds of ownership. But we can't. We simply can't. And so with sovereign grace, Messiah, Messiah extends to us the terms of peace. So where is happiness? Where is refuge? The Psalms, this Psalm, and all of Scripture is very candid about that. There is no refuge from God. But there is refuge in God. And that's where this psalm goes. There's no refuge from this king, capital K, king. There is no refuge from him. Oh, but there is refuge in him. So come. These two together are the superscription to the they're, psalter. They're the introduction to the whole of the psalter, and to the overarching themes of all of Scripture altogether, the whole redemptive story. And it exhorts you simply to this. See God's way of wisdom and yield to God's King and by faith, by faith, find refuge in Him. O Lord, we pray that You would again give to us eyes to see Give to us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Make us so that we might grow in your grace as we yield to this, your King, whom you've sent in mercy upon us into your creation to take on flesh so that we by faith might have life and liberty and joy and hope for eternity in him alone alone. Would you do this for your own glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.